Hi, you're listening to Single Steps, a podcast by Hatchaser Consulting, inspired by Lao Tzu's The Journey of a Thousand Miles Begins with a Single Step. You'll be hosted by Amos Day as he meets Mark Moose of Nippon Express. Every talent has a story, and each story starts with their single steps. I'm Amos, your host for today. In every episode, I invite guests who will share their single steps and how they have come a long way to where they are. I'm honored to have with me today Mr. Mark Moose, a senior global supply chain leader with over two decades of proven logistic sales transformation experience, having lived and worked in Asia, Europe, and the emerging market. His work experience includes DHL, Jody's, and Agility. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Amos. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's a very chilling day, a very chilling week. I think it's been raining nonstop. I know, first time I've seen it this bad in Singapore. <laughs> everyone, everyone thinks the UK rains badly, but Singapore's beaten the it, UK. It's now like a, our uh, new winter, <laughs> where things uh, start to get really wet and cold. Um, First of all, uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, obviously, I invited you primarily because you have a very diversified background, having worked in multiple locations. You also kickstarted the Global Logistics Innovation Center for Nippon Express in Singapore. That was in 2017. Can you tell us a little bit more about that journey? Sure. Um, uh, you know, just as you mentioned, I started actually about nearly 30 years ago uh, when I joined UPS. Uh, as a sales executive, and I've kind of done various things from process uh, engineering, uh, operations management, um, country management, key accounts, global key accounts, etc., all the way through in, in different regions. And that journey has brought me almost full circle, um, you know, through working, and, and I love working, li- living in Asia, um, to enable me to join a company called Nippon Express, who when I joined, it was quite an interesting story. They had a remit uh, for me. And their idea was they wanted to create more non-Japanese business. Um, they're a $20 billion company, right, which very comfortably puts us in the top five, possibly top three. Um, and it was a company that I'd never heard of. I mean, I've seen the warehouses, I've seen the trucks, but really had very little engagement. So when, when we were having a discussion about almost creating a business startup the Glick organization was within a $20 billion infrastructure. That sounded something that was quite unusual and quite challenging to do. And it was also one of my other loves, which is sales, right? So, you know, the whole point was to come in and create an organization that can target large customers that don't know Nippon Express or that we haven't engaged with in the right way. So that was a journey. So when I've interviewed people in the past, one of the things I say is we are a, a startup within a $20 billion company. Now, where we are today is three and a half years down that, that journey. And we have been successful. So the original Global Logistics Innovation Center disappeared actually about a year and a half ago. And we're now more institutionalized within the organization. And I'm the head of Global Key Account Sales within the organization and run a small team of people in Singapore in, encompassing uh, a number of uh, disciplines and, and one of the key objectives of that is first of all we are a sales hunting team if you want to use that analogy although I prefer the word fisherman and in addition to that we have support mechanisms which maybe we can go on to later which support that sales team and, and is one of the, the key reasons why I believe our team is very successful because of the support mechanisms that are put into place to ensure that we win Right. During the time where we met, I think it was three years ago, 
I remember you being the only employee within the organization. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Having to bring in the numbers, the customer, and then starting to build a team. Yeah. Um, I, I know that now you have a full-fledged team with data analytics. Um, you have a tender and solution. You have program management. How do you think you have structured the team differently from where you were before uh, based on your experience? I, th- I think one of the one of the buzzwords that we've all used and probably overused for many years, but I feel, still think it's relevant, and that is legacy systems and legacy process or legacy companies versus some of these newer organisations. And you know, you can look in our industry, and the legacy companies have been around for hundreds of years, if not you know fifty years plus, right? And you've got an infrastructure where you you know it's been refined and refined and refined over the years to where it is. Now, the difference between coming in and taking on an existing organization, existing people, existing infrastructure, existing systems, is very different to starting with a clean sheet of paper. So, you know, and I did a talk on this previously, but one of the things that I, you know, I found quite fascinating is one of my first hires in a high-performing sales team was an analytics expert. And everyone would look at me as I'm crazy. Um, but I honestly believe that today we have to be so much smarter with big data and how we use big data to help us improve sales. And that was sort of something that, you know, we, they sort of gave me the bandwidth to, to go ahead and sort of do that, even though within our own company we'd never hired analytics people. Now, as we, you know, fast forward down that sort of road, the, the work and the activity this team does for us is phenomenal. I, and I absolutely believe it has helped improve our success levels uh, exponentially. And maybe we'll touch upon that later. But that sort of point about coming in with a really clear vision of what we needed to do, how we needed to target the market, right? And the other thing is you think about it is really, I was a classic case of chicken and egg. I still can't tell you which came first. Uh, Meaning, you know, we could have gone in on the big bang approach where we sort of try to bring in 50 people and, and probably fail. Or it's my approach was to start with something fairly small and prove that we could navigate the complex Nippon Express infrastructure with a non-Japanese uh, format right, and prove that it works. And as we prove it works, we can then build the support levels and support the customers and our team by increasing our um, support mechanisms with people, program management, as you mentioned, tender management and, and analytics. Right. A lot of time when I speak to talent, um, the talent will always look at the size of the organization, the structure, um, after, the, after which they will talk about the compensation and all. Mm-hmm. I think most importantly, uh, we are seeing talent that are more receptive to work in a startup environment right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I say startup, they prefer to um, be with the mature startup. And, and you being the only employee, uh, you had to convince the lights of some talent to join you, mm-hmm. being the second, being the third, etc. Yeah. Um, do you find it exceptionally challenging uh, in attracting talent into your organization or your team? And Actually, yes. It was probably my biggest challenge. And um, I think there's, you know, an analogy you can look at and you know if you look on LinkedIn which I'm sure this will get uh, spread upon there's a lot of information there which says that people don't leave their companies they leave their boss well there's also this really key point and I always believe people buy people so when you're joining a company I think one of our biggest challenges is Nippon Express had a legacy of a perception within the marketplace and 
you know, if I'm really honest, I don't necessarily think it's the best. Okay. Um, so coming in new and creating something new and creating something which was so different to what Nippon Express has, has done, we also had to look at the people coming in and, and convincing people to come and actually interview with me, right? And actually see there was a different side to Nippon Express that maybe the perception, right, had led them to believe. So that really was probably the biggest challenge. It actually is a recruitment agent more than me, okay? Because like most, and I'm a classic salesperson, regardless of my title, I'm still a salesman at the end of the day, people do buy people, right? So I have no doubts that when people come and sit down and talk with me, that they're probably going to want to come and work for Nippon Express. But getting them in the door is really the job of the recruitment agency, Right, or the headhunters that we, we're working with. And that was probably one of the biggest challenges is convincing the agencies that we are different. Convincing the agencies to talk to the candidates and say, whatever you think you might know, right, think again. So that was, a, that was a, I think, the biggest shift. And as I say, starting from zero, well, just myself, recreating the team. I was actually supported by uh, one of my colleagues from Japan in setting that up. Um, so it wasn't just me, but yeah, I was the only... Uh, uh, non-Japanese person in that team let's put it that way um, that sort of enabled us then to sort of start rolling and as people I think took that leap of faith uh, came in and, and had a discussion and, and uh, I desperately tried to put people off and that's one of my tactics <laughs> um, you know and try to really look at seeing whether people have got that fight and that belief and almost that entrepreneurial spirit right you know you're thinking about a startup and what I mean by startup is all traditional, you know, you asked me before about the difference between an existing company and then something in a new environment. You know, we, whilst we can take some of the best systems and best platforms that the company has to offer, there is no mandated approach. We don't have a global sales approach. We don't have a global CRM system or didn't when we started. So all these sort of things that, you know, a lot of bigger companies already have in place and start, you know, we had to sort of search around develop best demonstrated practice, work with the different regions because we are a global organization, not, not a Singapore organization. Uh, we had to sort of put all of that in place and get agreement uh, and consensus across the organization to you know, start developing best practices, start developing frameworks, start developing common platform systems, information sharing. Right. So you have been in the organization for almost, or uh, running this program for almost three years, going forth? Yeah. And um, a lot of time, we want, to, we want to ensure that we don't fall into the legacy path. As a leader, uh, especially in sales transformation, how do you then uh, ensure that your team, yourself, or even the organization doesn't fall into sitting back, relax, and you know, going back into the legacy route? Yeah, it's easy. I just fired them all last time. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no it's, it's a really good point, actually. And it was one that I think as we... certainly as I hit my three-year anniversary with the company, um, it wasn't the best time to hit that three-year anniversary during COVID. And, you know, from the beginning of the year, we really had to, you know, spend a lot of time reflecting and and looking inwards, really, about how we do things and how we need to do things going forward. So some, you know, some opportunities came up with uh, internal transfers, promotions, um, and, you know, within the team that we you know, allowed them to go for other opportunities with the new organization. It also allowed us the opportunity to have some fresh uh, ideas and fresh people, um, you know, to, to evaluate who's in the market and sort of bring some fresh people in. So as we speak, as we're coming into this year, we'll have almost about 40% of our team 
uh, new hires within the last four months. And with that sort of new hire, we've also taken the chance to sort of look at, relook at what we have been doing really well, um, looking at how we can optimize, how we can change, um, and looking at how we you know, take this sort of three-year cycle, which is actually a very Japanese thing. Um, but, you know, to take it in a three-year block. So in other words, what are we going to do now for the next three years? So the last three years is gone. Let's focus on the next three years and let's not keep doing the same things that we did last year. We'll keep the stuff that was working, but we enhance, improve, and go on to that next three-year cycle in slightly different directions, slightly different, you know, areas. How do you then see um, in tradition the three years, five years, or even 10 years business plan uh, has changed with the dynamics of the changing environment, uh, the people. Do you see, do you still see the short, mid, and long-term strategy being relevant? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and a really good example of how, you know, we, we've got Japanese culture and, and the way the Japanese companies, we always look very long-term. And looking long-term, at our customers means that we, you know, if we don't think we can do something, we won't do it. It's very clear. We won't do something and mess it up. But equally, if we look at what's happened, I think through COVID, there's probably one big word that this, not just our industry, but most industries are, are experiencing at a rapid rate, and that's digitization. Right? Everybody's looking to say, you know, how do we digitize what we're doing? I mean, we're sitting here today having a, a podcast or a webcast, right? And that wouldn't have been done typically a year ago, right? So we've all had to ad- ad- adapt with conferences and, and, and networking and how we do business. Now, the other thing that, that's happened is the way that we do business. So we built, you know, for instance, our analytics group, we built a platform that allowed us to look historically at data with market feeds uh, from outside sources and build in a very advanced uh, tool which allows us to analyze RFQ and tender management right, uh, in a live environment. Now that's all, predis- that's all uh, based on old data, right? Um, and the old data helps us learn you know, past RFQs, past experiences to, to help us win. That was brilliant, going great guns until COVID. And all of a sudden, your last year's rates mean nothing. Right? And actually, rates have been pretty standard, pretty consistent for the last five years. So all of a sudden, we've got a completely new reality, which is changing by the week, not changing by the year, not changing every couple of months, changing by the week. We've got our customers who, instead of going to an annual RFQ, are coming to weekly RFQs. Right? So the, the, you think about that as an enormity, as, as an organization, in particular around the global accounts that we really focus on. You know, they don't just come and ask for five lanes or five rates. They come and ask for a couple of thousand. So how do we get that amount of data, that amount of live market information to them quickly, accurately, and competitively? Right? It's a real massive challenge. So we really had to get our heads together, certainly around May, June, right, and reevaluate what we've been doing and say, how can we rechange this now for today? Right? How can we then develop live platforms which give us up-to-the-minute rates, not up to the last year rates or up to last month's rates, but up to the minute rates. So that's something that we worked on, was able to, to, uh, to, to roll out. And, and it's something that's still ongoing. But again, our whole RFQ cycle, so traditional teams, tender management teams that are used to these annual things, now are looking at week by week, month by month validity. So there's so many changes that we've had to do. And if we weren't agile enough, right, we could have just 
you know, fallen over in this whole process. But we really had to sort of take that, you know, take that and change people and change the way that we do things and and really just you know, just evolve right? like a you know chrysalis in a way coming out as a butterfly. But you know, we've had to do that. It's a good analogy. But <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you have many years of experience, over 30, since you first joined UPS days. Um, how fast you have seen the transformation over the last five years, especially within the African industry? I think the basics of the industry haven't changed. Right? In terms of what are we actually doing, there's airlines moving around, we're buying space, selling space. There's integrators that have come to place, the likes of DHL and UPS and you know, I've worked for both of them, including TNT actually, now owned by FedEx, where they have their own planes, and that's more of an express uh, sort of structure. Um, but I think one of the things, that even when I started out very early on, track and trace, which you know was an early form of data, was really important. And, it, and I think as we've gone along, it's been almost as important for the customer to be data aware, right? Where is my shipment? What's going on with the shipment? As whether it's actually been delivered. So, uh, you know, we talked about legacy systems. So a lot of these, the juggernauts of the industry sort of 30 years ago, um, you know, had the money to invest hundreds of millions of dollars needed to get into the space of track and trace and and providing data on the shipments quite slowly. Um, As we moved, you know, certainly into about the last 10 years and probably more, the last five years in particular, where it's really gathered pace is, you know, cloud-based computing and, and uh, the Internet of Things have really helped smaller companies level that playing field. Right? So no longer do you need to have uh, a, an organization in every single country with the same platform and same use, you know, and, and the same systems in place. Right? So you could have a network of agents who essentially share the same data platform or through cloud base have got a single interface to present that to a customer. So that's kind of the transformation that's gone on from that side. Uh, with COVID, we know that a lot of online buying experience has been ongoing. Um, me, myself, I've ordered a lot more than usual. Um, I ship via air and at times uh, via sea. Um, that, that gives me a lot of um, uh, analytics on tracking. You know, I'm able to, to know where my goods are, uh, how accurate they will arrive at my doorstep, even for freight forwarding, ocean freight, which was never before uh, like this. Um, how have you seen the change in recent uh, maybe six months or so uh, within the industry? Have you seen like um, absolute surge in price or volume? And how do you see this industry moving forward? Um, there's, there's a, it's a million dollar question. There's so many different aspects to it. I mean, the first thing is, you know, and I don't consider myself an expert, it's my opinion, but if you look very clearly what's happened in this marketplace. First of all, as COVID hit, shipping liners started reducing capacity because sending a vessel empty when production was shutting down initially from China and and parts of Southeast Asia to the rest of the world, it enabled them to sort of start doing less vessels and, you know, filling up those vessels. Um, But, you know, they still got costs associated with what they're doing. So as they started doing that, that was that was fine. So that all of a sudden started to change our, our typical supply chain models, meaning that the vessels, the containers were not in the right place or the place expected given the current consumption. The other point is as airlines stop moving, you know, 65% of world freight that travels on airplanes goes by passenger plane. 
So the biggest part that's suffered right now is passengers. Right? You know, living in Singapore is really only returning citizens. So there's no tourism or no uh, anything from about the last nine months. So those planes have completely come out of the market. So you've taken a big hole. So most of what's going today is charters. And we've exponentially increased our charter rate, as with most companies have done, um, and put on services that we've never have done. We've looked at all sorts of different uh, solutions and uh, rail services are going, have grown exponentially. Uh, ocean, uh, the moment, you know, you can't get an ocean shipment for love nor money almost because the prices are a treble, quadruple, uh, what they have been even three to four months ago. Um, so the, the whole market is in turmoil and it has to level set, but we don't know where that level set is. And I think from my perspective, one thing is for sure, it's not going to be what it was a year ago. Okay. And it may be take four or five years, in my opinion, before it sort of gets back to any form of level of where it was then. Okay? But in the meantime, it's going to be rough, you know, a sort of a, a phasing from where we are today as the vaccines take over, maybe more passenger planes come into play. Um, vessels at the moment, again, all-time highs, containers in the wrong location. So, you know, there's a lot of empty sailings coming, well, not empty sailings, but product that's not moving out of uh, countries. So... It's it's been very um, tumultuous in the industry, and and um, every single point that we touch is 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 getting impacted, and um, you know, but it's just how you cope with it. I mean, how we deal with it. I mean, the most important thing in this is our customers trying to ensure continuity of their products, of their services, and so you know, it's been a huge amount of effort, and the cost is kind of is, is there. But that's, uh, again, those costs at some point will have to be passed on to the consumers if they aren't already. And, you know, quite often with ocean freight, when you start to look at from the time the orders are placed to the time it gets into the stores, it can be anywhere between three to six months. So, you know, we probably haven't seen the impact of the significant rises from September, October yet. Right? So never mind what's happening now. Um, you know, so I don't. Well, I don't wish to be the merchant of doom and gloom, but but that's you know from what we see in 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 the market. You know, I mean, our job is to stay on top of it and find alternative solutions, which we're constantly trying to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, our, our business today is far more about in air freight, far more about charters. In ocean freight, it's um, you know we've had discussions amongst peers, um, you know, hypothetically. Uh, and around the industry about you know how our customers also have to change because one of the key things at the moment is given the shortage of available space both air and ocean and rail is how you know we talk about inventory right and or planning or forecasting and you know there are certain customers who are brilliant at forecasting and some that are terrible um, in the old days I say old days pre-COVID if somebody wanted to give us five containers and turned up with 10 or you know 10 tons of air freight turned up with 50 generally you can deal with it today they give us 10 that's fine if they give us notification of 10 if they turn up with 20 it's going to be really tough to find that space and it doesn't matter whether it's ours or any of our competitors so i think that's going to drive a certain behavior and the type of customers that will be rewarded are the ones that commit to volumes you know we're going to give you five containers and they give us five containers because then we can actually move it it's the ones that they give us five they, they say they're going to give us five and give us ten those extra five are going to be the problem right? it's not that we won't find a solution we're not going to be able to find a solution as quickly as we could previously so it's all about agility 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we try to be agile in, in what we do. Um, but, but the reality is, you know, I mean, essentially force majeure was called by a number of, of players um, last year. And, and so all bets are off. And, uh, you know, that, hence we all have to find that new reality and the new way forward. And, and, the, and the operation teams, not just for us, but across the industry, did a fantastic job. I mean, you know, whilst most of us have been, you know, working from home and are able to do so, you know, our operations teams and not just ourselves, but our competitors have all been in the office and making sure, you know, the products, um, you know, we don't hit shortages and products get out, products come in and are processed. So, you know, to, to help continuity. So thank you, Mark, for providing your journey, insightful information on the logistic industry, and most importantly, allowing others to learn from your experience. This is Amos signing off, and till next time, continue your learning journey through us. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast can help in your learning journeys. Check us out on our LinkedIn page, Hatch Asia Consulting. Till next time, keep growing.